KMTT, Ki Mitzion Titzei Torah, welcome back. And today is Wednesday, and in this summer's man, the Wednesday share will be given by Harav Moshe Tarragon, a share on ethical character, midot, ethical attributes and character, Harav Moshe Tarragon. Several psokim in Tanakh, which articulate both the value of humility as well as the dangers of arrogance and of haughtiness invoke a metaphor of of bodily parts or bodily organs as expressing human arrogance. Some of the psukim which address this very, very unique association between the trait of humility and particular parts of the human body and postures of those parts on behalf of the arrogant person. Some of these examples would include the, um, for example, the use of uh, the Pasuk in Yeshaya, Paragimel, Pasuk Tezayin, which HaKadosh Baruch Hu rebukes the young girls of Yushalayim. Yan ki gavhu they were haughty, they conducted themselves with a um, a taut neck. A taut neck means an uplifted, almost brazen or flippant neck. So in this case, the Pasuk describes arrogance, brazenness, through a, a neck that, not just the neck, but a head. Of course, the position of the neck will determine the position of the head a neck that's taut and um, inflexible. You may recall the very familiar Al-Chait, which we recite on Yom Kippur, Al-Chait Shechatanu L'Fanecha Benetias Garon, based on this Pasuk in Yeshaya. Um, stretching a neck out, um, being haughty, being arrogant. It's a very interesting Gemara in Shabbos, Daf Samach Beis, that tries to associate a taut or outstretched neck with other body parts. Darash Rabba Brava Bereidra Viloi, my Dechsiva, Yomar Hashem Yan Kigavu Benot Sion, Shayim Halchos Bekoma Zekufa. So not only were their necks taut, but their overall body, their heads, perhaps their upper torso, was raised in an arrogant and almost defiant stance. It's one example in which the trait of Gaiva, and of course the inverse trait, is associated with various postures and, and stances of the human body, expressions of the human body. Um, there's a Pasuk in Tehillim, in which David HaMelech Davin's Al, Al Tivoini Regal Gava Viyad Rishem Al Tinideini. So David HaMelech worries about the trespass, or the attack, of Regal Gava of a haughty foot, of a trampling, dismissive, arrogant, and condescending foot. And Chazals, we'll see a little bit later, associated this with Adam HaRishon as he was about to partake of the Eitz Hadas. According to several Midrashim in Chazal, the actual Eitz Hadas exclaimed this Pasuk, which David HaMelech later recorded, against the trampling and arrogant um, advance of Adam HaRishon. Sepasik in Mishle in Perak Vav, Enaim Ramos, Lashon Shakir, Viadaim Shavchos Dam Naki. So the concept of Lashon Shakir is not a metaphor, but it's a actual description, a tongue which speaks falsehood. 
Yadayim Shav Chosdam Naki is also a, a, a literal translation, not a symbol. Hands that spill blood that murder. The first part of the Pasuk, Enayim Ramos, eyes that are high, that are ambitious. Very interesting juxtaposition of Enayim Ramos, of ambition and horniness next to Lashon Sheker and Yadayim Shav Chosdam. The Medrash in Bamid Baraba in Parshates actually associates this with a sota. That the sota um, desires or aspires to another man. And the continuation of the Pasuk describes some of the outcome of that misplaced ambition. Um, another Pasuk, this is in Tehillim, Parakuv Aleph, which describes haughtiness through high or uplifted eyes. Says, he whose eyes are high and haughty, and his heart is rachav, is wide. It's an interesting association again between haughtiness and rachav v'shalev. Also, says, I can't, um, I can't take, I can't um, tolerate that type of person. So it's very interesting that there are many different psukim in Tanakh, which capture both the trait of haughtiness, the danger of haughtiness, and the desirable trait of humility through eyes, through necks, through um, many different parts of the human body and human posture. Through feet. I think that some of this has to do with the fact that humility and personal modesty is a seminal feature of human virtue. It is a porthole which leads to many different values and character traits. I mentioned this in the previous year. And in this respect, associating this trait with the postures and stances of the human body reminds us that this trait mediates um, and enables a range of other traits. It's, it's, it's part of our essence, part of our identity. It, it aligns itself with the human body the same way that a person would experience different aspects of human experience through his body, through his eyes, through his legs, through his neck, through his hands. So these traits are our organs. This is not just a trait amongst other traits, but it's a seminal foundational trait that dictates and flavors the overall religious and and moral experience. So to a degree associating this trait with body parts stresses how seminal it is. I also think that in some of these psukim the body parts are, are highlighted because the trait of humility and the danger of arrogance is always relative to other people and relative to how other people see it and it's on display. And many of these psukim themselves uh, are worried not just about the body part per se, but the way that they are displayed to others. It's a very interesting perspective upon humility. There's an interesting Avos de Rabinatan in which the humility of Moshe Rabbeinu is assessed based on that Pasuk in the end of Parshat Bahalotcha, 
Pasuk describes Moshe, Vaish Moshe Anav Mi'od, Mikol Ha'adam, Asher Al Peneha Adama. So there are three different phrases to this Pasuk. After describing Moshe as Anav Mi'od, and I mentioned in last week's year, the term Mi'od describes the extreme humility of Moshe. This is one of the only traits in which the Rambam doesn't endorse a middle-of-the-road or median approach. But the Medrash, or the mission of Rabbi Natan in Perak Chi, in Perak Tes, assesses the additional phrases, Mikal HaAdam, Mikal HaAdam, Asher Penei HaAdama. Very interesting Mishnah. The Mishnah says, you would think that he was humble like a Malach HaSharis. Tamud Lomar Mikal HaAdam, Me'adam Amru, Moshe Rabbeinu, you would have thought his humility was like that of an angel. An angel has no will or ego, no self-interest as a pure extension of the Rabboni Shalom. And you would think that Moshe, so to speak, had abdicated or suppressed any self-realization. He wasn't aware of his own merits, of his own accomplishment. And in that context, his humility had shown, had, had excelled. So the Pasuk stresses that his humility was the humility of a human being, fully aware of his talent, fully aware of his accomplishments, equipped with ego in a healthy sense, and still he was able to generate that level of humility. So the term Mikol HaAdam reinforces Moshe's humility as based within the human experience, with ego and with self-awareness. And the next phrase of the Pasuk, Asher Al-Penei HaAdama, the mission of Esdriv Nasan interprets, Yachal Shehaya Anav Kiderot HaYishonim, Tamud Lomar Al-Penei HaAdama, you would think that Moshe was humble like the earlier generations. Talmud Lomar, What exactly does the Mishnah mean? That he was humble like the earlier generations? And this supposition is rejected by the emphasis in the Pasuk, that he was humble in a contemporary sense. So part of this Mishnah may be referring to the fact that it's always easy to generate humility when you compare yourself to titanic um, exemplars of moral behavior, you go back to the distant past, heroic figures, well, there's no way I can even compare myself to their experience, to their accomplishment, to their talents. But somehow when you compare yourself to the contemporary condition, to your peers, to your colleagues, the nature of human ego is that you see yourself as superior, as talented, and as surpassing of these people. And you would think that Moshe Rabbeinu's humility, again, was based on that unnatural comparison to previous generations. And therefore the Torah stresses to debunk this notion, Asher Pnei HaAdama, that even when Moshe compared himself to his peers, to his colleagues, to his contemporaries, and at some point he was aware of his accomplishment, he was still able to cast that awareness in a humble and meek manner. So humility is both something which is on display, people will notice the way we conduct our bodies and and present ourselves, the way we walk, the way we speak, our eyes, our body language, will both reflect an internal modesty and will also help generate. This is a classic example where externals are both a product of internals, but also um, facilitators and catalyzers of, catalysts of internal traits. But there's the relative element that our humility to a degree and the dangers of arrogance are always a product and are always pitched within comparing ourselves to our society, to those around us and that comparison is is exemplified through physical body traits 
um, eyes and feet and, and hands. So it's interesting that of all the traits in Tanakh to be associated with body parts, it seems that the trait of humility is uniquely signified, is singled out. I mentioned before the Medrash in Bamidbar, which describes the arrogance of a sota and the arrogance which ultimately um, tempts her, um, uh, leads her to aspire, to dream of another man. The association between arrogance and ambition, and ultimately not just arrogance and ambition, but arrogance and desire, which ambition breeds, is very is clearly evident in the example of Korach. The uh, Torah writes, "Vayikach Korach ben Yitzhar ben Kahaz ben Levi," and Chazal on that pasuk in Korach associate Korach's um, Korach's failure with a pasuk in Mishlei. The pasuk in Mishlei, Parakud Ches, describes an Ach Nifsham Mikiriat Oz, a brother, a reference to Korach who stemmed from the same family as Moshe Rabbeinu, the family of Leviim. Nifsha was guilty, was criminal. Mikirias Oz from a fortress of strength. And Chazal described Korach's delusions of grandeur because of his heightened position, because of his nobility, because he was part of the so-called aristocracy. And in this case, his power and his title breeded even more ambition, breeded even greater self-evaluation and self-aggrandizement, and led him to delusional ambitions and expectations. As the Medrash comments, and it's a very well-known Medrash, Rashi quotes it, Korach Shepikea Korach was so wise, was so astute, Mara l'shtus hazeh. How could he possibly have challenged the authority of Moshe Rabbeinu, the undisputed leader of Amisol? It seems so illogical that someone of Korach's intelligence could embark on such a uh, plan of folly. And the Medrash continues, Eino hit aso, his eyes, in this case, the eyes are a reference to the eyes of ambition. Ambitious eyes, a product of unrestrained arrogance and self-evaluation. Ra shal shelas gidolao He saw us in prophecy, saw prophetically that one day a great legacy would stem from him. Shmuel would be his descendant. And he assumed that if Shmuel were his descendant, then he was also bound for glory and he didn't realize that his children would perform tshuva and ultimately... Um, progenate one day Shmuel Hanavi. But Korach is actually highlighted as a classic example of horniness run amok, breeding unrealistic ambition, which itself lends him or lands him in mutiny. I mentioned before the phrase Regel Gava, Altivoni Regel Gava. The Medrash associates this with um, either, alternatively, Adam Harishon or the snake, but in each case, the Medrash traces their betrayal of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's will to a degree of ambition and expectations based on their assumed superiority. There's one version in the Medrash that the Nachash wasn't just jealous of Adam, but he had ambitions to eliminate Adam and thereby achieve sole dominion over the entire animal kingdom, over all creatures, having eliminated Adam from his path. Adam himself may have, according to the Medrash, been seduced into this chait in part because of his ambition to be more godlike. So the term regal ga'ava, al-tivoni regal ga'ava, the 
a phrase again taken initially from Tehillim, Viad Rishayim Al Tanideni, Tehillim Paraklamid Vav, is projected by the Medrash alternatively onto Adam or to the Nachash. Um, probably the statement of Chazal that most closely fuses haughtiness and arrogance with the dangers of ambition is a Mishnah in Avos Perakei contrasting the disciples of Avraham Avinu and the disciples of Bilam Harasha. The Mishnah reads, Kol mi halalu mi shel Avraham Avinu. The following three traits were characteristic of Avraham, Ayin Tova, generosity, Ruach Nimucha, low in spirit, V'nefesh Shefela. As opposed to the Talmidim of Bilam Harasha, Ayin Ra'a, miserliness, stinginess, Ruach Givoha V'nefesh Rechava It's that tandem of Ruach Givoha V'nefesh Rechava Reminiscent of that, that tandem in Tehillim Parakuf Aleph Giva Inayim V'urechav Levav So Ruach Givoha or Giva Inayim speaks to haughtiness and arrogance Rachavos Halev is more suggestive of Ambition, aspiration, maybe in a financial sense, maybe just in a existential sense, avarice, greed. These traits are fed or sustained by self-evaluation. A person will always be more ambitious, more interested in personal, material, um, social gain if they deem themselves worthy, suited, uh, deserving of that gain. Very well-known Evan Ezra on the Pasuk of Lo Sachmot, very famous Evan Ezra, about um, questions, how could the Torah, it's in Evan Ezra and Parshish Yisro, how could the Torah instruct us against sentiments and emotions that are natural? A person sees a woman that he loves, sees his friend's wife, his friend's house. These are natural emotions. The Torah can legislate against acting upon emotions, but how could the Torah legislate against the very emotions? That's an important question. And indeed, according to almost all we've shown him, the literal Isser of Lotachmot is indeed only violated if some action is at least attempted, if not successfully taken. But the Ebenezer is not interested in the halacha question as much as in the spirit of the Torah's issuance of this infraction, of this violation. The Ebenezer presents the well-known parable of a serf, of a country servant, who falls in love with the king's daughter, or at least considers that romance, but rejects it because it's completely um, it's completely um, impractical, impossible. There are social, economic, and um, ethnic divisions um, mandate that this union will never take place. And since it's not accessible, it's not something that he can ever fulfill or achieve. It doesn't even generate interest. And Evan Ezra believes that HaKadosh Baruch Hu would like us to see our friends acquisitions and possessions as so distant, as so irrelevant to our lives, that we're so separated, in this case not by socio or economic boundaries, but by legal boundaries, that we don't even generate interest, because generally temptation and lust are fueled, or at the very least sustained, by accessibility and availability. When something is completely unavailable, then maybe fantasy sets in, but not real substantive interest and desire. So one of the side or the byproducts of arrogance and of haughtiness is 
um, heightened ambition, greed, interest in acquiring material title, which is ratified by an internal sense of self-worth and self-accreditation. And again, it's that Pasuk in Tehillim, which associates Giva'inayim or Rechav Levav, paralleled by the Mishnah in Avos, describing the Tamidim of Bilam HaRasha, who are Ruach Givoa V'Nefesh Rechava, and in the experience of Bilam, we detect the self-accreditation, the way he announces himself as someone that knows God's will, that sees the vision of God, who has a personal rapport and conversation with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and somehow that translates into expectation of reward, financial or public approval. Chazal were also sensitive to the unique dynamic between humility and anava and the acquisition of Torah knowledge. The Gemara and Tainis, Davzayin and Aleph, questions the imagery or the association between the imagery of water and of Torah. Why is Torah referred to as water in Mayim Torah? So classically, because both Torah and water are life providers. But the Gemara and Tainis has a different strategy. Lama nimshula divrei Torah lamayim? Ma mayim anichim makom gavoa v'holchim lemakom namuch? Just as Torah, or just as water, excuse me, migrates or gravitates from high locations to lower locales, whether it's in a more limited ecosystem, water originates in upper mountain springs and percolates through valleys and rivers below, or at a more global level, water melts in polar ice caps and begins to descend toward the equator through the oceans. Water also descends from heaven, falls from heavens, and every instance water is trickling through the forces of gravity from high locations to lower locations. Avdivritara Torah can only inhere within someone who's humble and who's modest. A parallel Gemara in Erevin employs not the imagery of water, but the choice of a desert as a location to deliver Torah. Very interesting play on words. Rabbi Masna describes the Pasuk in Chukas, which broadcast the delivery of the Torah in a midbar, umi midbar matana. Why was the Torah delivered in a midbar of all locations? So at least this Gemara in Erevin suggests, in mesim adam atzmo kamidbar dashinbo, the person converts himself into a desert who allows others to trespass, to trample, to abuse. Tamidam iskayim, his Torah will sustain. Imlav ain't tamidam iskayim. And as the Gemara continues, the Pasuk itself, describing the delivery of the Torah and the desert, a desert being a humble and yielding environment, continues to describe the dangers of haughtiness, which ironically Torah study itself can can yield or invite. The continuation of the Pasuk, Mimibar Matana, God delivered the Torah as a gift in the desert. We Matana Nachliel, because of the Matana Chazal Darshim, Matana Nachliel, we inherited Akarish Baruch, we were Nochel Hashem, we study Hashem's Torah, we acquire knowledge of the Rabbana Shalom. The Gemara in Erevin continues that having succeeded in Torah study and seeing yourself as someone who understands the Rabbana Shalom, that could lead to hubris, as the Gemara says, magis libo, person can, um, person can aggrandize and evaluate in an inflated manner, and that will lead to his downfall, to his um, decline, both ultimately morally and personally. 
So these three Gemaras, in Tanis, Davzayin, and Ervin, and Dalit, each speak to the association, the unique alliance between Torah acquisition and humility. Um, interestingly enough, as always, these, this association is bilateral. Humility is both, and should be both, the byproduct of Torah study. Primarily, humility is acquired both by recognizing the mortality of man, the futility of the human condition, um, what is typically referred to as shifla sa'adam, that the person is, is flawed and failed, and the conditions of life are the conditions of defeat. As we recite in um, the davening of Hashem Yom Kippur, Adam Yisadom Yafar, Yisafar Yafar Ben Afshau, Yavi Lachmau, Mashol Kecharas Hanishbar, Kitzitz Novel, Kianan Kola, Kuruach Noshaves, describing the futile conditions of human experience, the frailty and fragility of what it is to be a human. But ultimately, a second exposure or encounter which should foster humility is the recognition of godless abare, of the greatness, the, the, uh, the grandness of the Rabboni Shalom. Um, to a degree, we sense this in Avraham Avinu, in Parshas Vayera, where Kaddish Baruch Hu descends and and um, invites Avraham to contest his decision in stone. At that point, Avraham announces his very famous declaration of Anochi Afar Vayifer. Part of that recognition of Afar Vayifer, of self-diminution, is because he's encountering a Kaddish Baruch Hu as the, the, the great, grand, and in this case, severe judge of the human community, about to uh, eliminate a sizable portion of the human community. And that sweep and splendor, that strength of the Rabboni Shalom instigates the awareness and acknowledgement of Afar Va'efer. So, humility is born, on the one hand, out of Katnus Sa'adam, or Shifla Sa'adam, but also out of the recognition of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's majesty. And if Torah is the primary conduit featuring HaKadosh Baruch Hu's majesty, the enormity of His will and the depth of His wisdom then Torah should breed greater degrees of humility. And if it doesn't, then perhaps Torah isn't being studied with a religious um, moment or with a religious impulse. But not only is humility the consequence of Torah study, but to a degree it's also the precondition, the prerequisite, and the prerequisite on two fronts. The prerequisite morally, without humility, without modesty, a person's moral fitness is less developed, is less intact, and presumably HaKadosh Baruch Hu will be less inclined to award that person with Torah study. Torah study and Torah success is not merely an intellectual achievement, but or a personal autonomous experience, but has to be um, complemented by HaKadosh Baruch Hu delivering the Torah. But not just morally, even intellectually. Humility forms the grounds of Torah study, of Torah acquisition. There's a Gemara in Temura in which Describes the Gemara Tamura Daf Tezayin describes Moshe Rabbeinu on his deathbed, being visited by Yehoshua, and Moshe asks Yehoshua, "Do you have any questions? Are there any svekos that you'd like me to clarify?" And Yehoshua answers very promptly, very um, one could say um, sh- swiftly. He says, "I I've spent so much time studying Lo Yamush." Mitocha Oel, the Torah writes about Yoshua that he attended Moshe's tent, avidly listening to all of Moshe's Torah, 
Of course, I have no questions. And the Gemara continues to describe Miyad Tashash Kocho Shel Yoshua. Yeshua was weakened. And he forgot 300 halachos. And in addition to the halachos, he forgot 700 other svekos emerged. And Amisha was angered until Asnil ben Kenaz, as the Gemara continues, restored some of this knowledge. I don't think Yeshua is being punished for his momentary flash, even trace of hubris. I think it's just the reality. To, the retention of Torah knowledge is not just an intellectual skill, but retaining Torah knowledge is a moral commitment, an emotional investment, and the importance of Torah. We remember things that are important, we forget the less important. Every moment we forget Torah, we have a momentary obscurity of its importance, of its eternity. Um, the more that you think of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the more in touch with the eternity of Torah, by definition, the more eager and desperate a person is to remember Torah. The second that a little trace of arrogance slips into Yoshua's framework, again, for us it may not have been arrogance, but at least on Yoshua's level, it's deemed arrogance. The moment that that occurs, Yoshua can no longer maintain an uncompromised view of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He sees a little bit too much of himself, and he can't see the Rabboni Shalom as completely as he had in the past, and self-interest dims his vision of the Rabboni Shalom, which in turn makes the Torah less eternal, less compelling, and thereby less retained. So Yeshua isn't being punished, it's a reality that our retention of Torah knowledge or acquisition or understanding is based on uh, a sense of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence, an exclusive sense of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence, which eliminates any interest in human convention and human uh, agenda. And Yeshua provides a situation where human agenda creeps into the human field of view, thereby diminishing the sense of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and reducing the retention of Torah knowledge. Um, perhaps the exemplar of avid and almost desperate Torah study, which is launched by humility, which is ex- facilitated by humility. Not the humility is the byproduct of Torah study, but humility is the grounds of Torah study, is the well-known description of Rabbi Akiva. We're all familiar with that epiphany at the rock when he saw the rock being molded by or sculpted by the water and he reckoned well if water which is soft can sculpt something which is hard certainly tar which is difficult but the Mishnah continues to describe the next day the next day Rabbi Akiva actually sat with his child in what we would call a kindergarten and he begged the Rebbe to teach him Torah and he actually held the blackboard the Luach as the Rebbe was inscribing Aleph and Bays and Gimel and Rabbi Akiva slowly began at the age of 40 in a very, one can say, um, embarrassing situation. But he was so humble, and his thirst for Torah, in part because of that humility, was so great that he was in no way affected by that situation, and he was driven to acquire Torah. There's a medrash in the beginning of Bracious, which sort of summarizes this by referring to Anava as the Solita of Torah. It's hard to really know what Solita refers to. Samach Vav Lamed Yud In part, it's probably some type of crown because the next part of the Medrash refers to Yerashamayim being the Keser of Torah. So if Yerashamayim is the crown and Anav is the Solita, so perhaps it also refers to some ornament worn by a king or by a dignitary. But it quotes the Pasuk again of... Ekev Anava Yiras Hashem. So Chazal sensed 
not just humility as the porthole to general moral fitness, but in particular, the importance of humility in acquiring Torah study, in retaining Torah knowledge, in both allowing the individual that complete and immersed interest in the Rabbana Shalom as a precondition to that relationship with the Rabbana Shalom, but also the byproduct of Godless Habare, of that thoroughgoing and unmitigated recognition of their bonus